The reading which Nikki read to us just now is an account of Jesus and the Pharisees approaching life from two very different angles. And when they engaged Jesus in an exchange of view, they just did not want to understand, nor did they seem to get, who he was or what he was saying. I'm reminded of a story of a guy who didn't get it either. It was in the 1920s, 1930s, when there was increasing concern in the inner cities about drunkenness and the erosion of family life. Nothing new there, you say. There were concerned temperance leaders, and they were touring the difficult areas of the inner cities and pleading with young people to take vows of abstinence not usually associated with young people. On one occasion in inner Manchester, the speaker was earnestly putting his case, and like all good teachers, he brought to the meeting a visual aid. And uh, there were two glass tumblers produced, and to the delight of uh, the lads watching, a worm was placed in each of them. The speaker then produced a flask of water, and poured it into the first glass. And the worm wriggled around and generally showed great signs of happiness. He then, surprisingly, produced a bottle of gin and poured that into the second glass. It was quickly apparent that the second worm was not happy. It was dead, and really dead. Now, boys, he said, what lesson can we learn from that? (laughs) One bright lad on the front row immediately said, sir, it means that if you've got worms, you must drink gin. (laughs) (laughs) It could fairly be said he didn't get it. (laughs) Why am I telling you the story? Well, I'm checking up that you're awake at the beginning of this sermon. (laughs) And secondly... uh, I'm hoping that you might remember the theme of the service is the sermon is about somebody who didn't get it and what they didn't get. Would you like to turn to your Bibles, page 977, and have the outline, this cream piece of paper, handy? As Philip said, in this sermon series, we've been looking at things which Jesus did in his ministry. And today we uh, look at, have looked at the story, we heard the story of how he clashed with the Pharisees about keeping the Sabbath. The Pharisees, you see, believed that the only way to please God was to create a perfect society where everyone kept the law in the way the Pharisees told them to. They'd taken the Jewish law and made it into a set of rules. It goes back to the exile when... Um, The nation of Judah was taken off into exile and was in Babylon for 200 years. And when their descendants came back, the predecessors of the Pharisees said, right, we got that wrong. God was punishing us for living um, a pretty dishonorable life as a nation. So from now on, we're going to keep every law until we have a perfect society. And in that perfect society, the Messiah will come wasn't a very successful exercise, actually, because shortly after that, uh, just before Jesus came, there was, um, it was becoming increasingly apparent that the, 
the perfect society was a bit absent. It hadn't actually happened. And um, so we got to the rather strange point of the the people from the Parsis um, saying that the only perfect society is me. And to prove it, they went out into the desert, got a long pole, climbed up to the top of it and sat on the top. And they said, this is the only perfect society we can have. It was a losing battle, really, to find the perfect society. But the Pharisees persevered and they um, made all sorts of rules about how you should keep the Sabbath like making sure that when a tailor went home from work uh, on a Friday evening, he didn't still have a needle in his pocket, lest he might be accused, should he still be in his pocket when the Sabbath started at dusk, that he would be carrying a load, and that is work. That's true, I'm not, I kid you not. Um, so, um, join the club, they said, keep the rules our way, and that was the one thing that mattered. It was the basis of their world view. Everything centered on that. And their vision was um, set on the day when their society would one day be perfect. So, in these two stories, the Pharisees went into orbit when they saw Jesus, this young rabbi who didn't have the right background, walking through the cornfield on the Sabbath day and picking ears of corn and eating them. They screamed, that's harvesting! That's work! This is the Sabbath! Stop it! If you look at verse 3, you'll see that Jesus pointed them to their hero, King David, who in a crisis had been hungry with his men, and he, they went into the house of God, and they had eaten the sacred bread that the, the, the rules said was reserved as a perk for the priests. Jesus told the Pharisees their priorities were upside down. They hadn't got it. He told them that they didn't understand what, the old, what Hosea said when, they read, when he wrote, um, God desires mercy, not sacrifice. See, their worldview, what they related everything to, was centered on their rules and not what God had really said. The second story follows Jesus uh, going into the synagogue. I like the touch that Matthew puts in here. He said it was their synagogue. They got it how they wanted. It wasn't quite as it should be. And the Pharisees, it's quite clear, had set up a trap. They'd imported a man with a withered hand. And they asked Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, do you think? They weren't interested in his answer. They'd planted the handicapped man so that they might, verse verse 10, so that they might accuse him. This is war. And Jesus doesn't pussyfoot about He goes straight to the point, and he uncovers their hypocrisy. They wouldn't hesitate to rescue a sheep which had fallen down a pit on the Sabbath, so what's wrong with having seven-day medical care available for human beings? We're still trying to guess it, aren't we? (laughs) Aren't we more valuable than animals? Those Pharisees just didn't understand what the Sabbath was about. They hadn't listened to why God had created the Sabbath, in the first place. And so they went out, verse 14, 
and plotted and conspired against him how to destroy him. I hope they didn't form a committee meeting on the Sabbath. (laughs) Where did the idea of the Sabbath come from? Ten Commandments, you say? Well, they had something to say about it. The Fourth Commandment is full of it. But that's not the original uh, source of where the Sabbath came from. I wonder if you'd like to take and look at the back of the uh, order, the um, order of service, the um, batting sheet. Sorry, <laughs> and um, look at the first one, Genesis 1:31. The FF is not meaning I'm going to be very loud at this point. It means that I'm going to that this refers to the following verses. God saw that all that He had made, it was very good, and there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. Now, God finished the work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all the work he'd done in creation. This wonderful poem of the story of creation, God rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. The Sabbath is different. It's a mandate of creation. It's part of the rhythm of life which God intended for us. It's part of the heartbeat of creation and who we are. After all, we've been created in God's image, haven't we? And a Sabbath rest is what God demonstrated at the end of creation. And it's part of God's perfect will for every member of the human race. The Lordship of the Son of Man. So Jesus turns to the Pharisees in verse 8 and lobs his bombshell. He says, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Every word of that is heavy with significance. The Son of Man the character in the book of Daniel, which the Pharisees would have known very well, about a mysterious figure who goes alongside the Ancient of Days in heaven and is given power and authority over every nation and every people. Jesus says, that's me. Just imagine the sort of apoplexy the Pharisees would have. Who does he think he is? Well, he just told them. He, and they, then he made it worse. He said, I am the Lord. And that's very close to what the Old Testament Yahweh means. The word kurios in the New Testament. And he says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Do you get the enormity of what he's claiming? He, the one who said on the Sermon on the Mount, I've not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. I'll tell you how to understand it. He, Jesus, the Son of Man, pictured back in the the book of Daniel, King of the universe. He was there at creation. Jesus was the word of God, was he not? And God spake, and it was done. Then he says... He is even greater than the Old Testament temple 
another sacred point for the Jews, for the Pharisees, because he is the true temple, verse uh, 6. He is the way to God, the place we have to come to. He tells the self-appointed experts in the law to go back to the Old Testament and see what it actually says. Jesus is Lord of all creation. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He decides what the Sabbath is all about. It's made for him, man. It's not man made for the Sabbath. Why? It's all about rest. What does that mean for us? What does it look like for us who, to, who own God in Christ as Lord of the Sabbath? How do you spend Sunday? Whoops. I've got one or two practical suggestions. These are not rules, please. I am not rewriting the law as the Pharisees did. These are thoughts, suggestions, examples. They are not, not rules. The first one is that it's a time for rest and renewal. God rested, so do we. We need it. We are in God's image. Second, it's a hallowed day. God has set it apart to be holy. It's different from the others. We tried um, to have uh, a separate sort of routine on the the Sunday morning. Um, And um, one of the little things we did, nothing great significance in it, but it was just one of the things we tended to do, was to have a, a very different sort of breakfast. We had a very healthy breakfast, actually, um, but it was different from the one we normally had. And it was something which everybody liked and looked forward to. And uh, I find myself smiling wryly when I find the grandchildren being told to do the same. It's rather nice. How did Jesus spend his Sabbath? The Gospel tells us that his custom was to join with others in worship. Luke says, as his custom was, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And we know from the earliest days of the Christian church that they met together weekly. And they met together on Sunday, the first day of the week. We do the same. And lastly, it can be a family time. It can be a time to meet people, if if not necessarily a family, but to have time to go and spend time with other people. I'm always... Slightly envious of the French. I'm not always envious of the French, but I am when I go to France and I see how they spend their Sundays. And sometimes we go and join them because they're all having a huge Sunday lunch together. Everybody from great-grandma down to very junior. And it's a sacred spot in the week. Here in this country, as I hear the news this morning, we're endangered by the government's bill before the Parliament giving carte blanche to local councils to allow virtually unrestricted Sunday trading. Why? Well, it's good for the it's it's good for the economy, stupid. It makes more money. Which god are we worshipping there? Or again this week, I felt sorry for poor old Dan Walker, who's joining the BBC Breakfast Show next week, on Monday. 
and he's been vilified by a secular humanist media for saying that he will not work on a Sabbath, on the Sunday. Because he wants, he says, to be with his family and go to church. Why not? He's, he's had a deal with the BBC ever since he started working for them. But if you read those articles in the Times and the Guardian, their full-length articles last week, vilifying him, and they've, they've, drudged, they've, they've dreamt that, he, uh, because he keeps Sunday special, he must believe in six-day literal cre- creation. And they take him to task as being a rather stupid sort of person, if that's what he believes. He never said he did. Opposition is still with us as it was in Jesus' day. Now, I know that all kinds of people can't have Sabbath as a rest day, can they, Philip? Um, Vickers, for example. People who work in hospitals, hotels, train drivers, policemen, you name it. But the principle of a Sabbath day is valid, always. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. But there aren't any rules, as the Pharisees wanted to have. And we have to work out the principle of one day in seven as a day of rest. So what have we got to, where have we got to at, uh, so far in this looking at this passage? We've concluded that God has created us in his image. He wants the best for us and he has given us a day of rest. Do you believe that? Good. Secondly, we've seen that Jesus is Lord. He is God in human form. He was born to show us how we should live, and he died and rose again to make that possible. Sabbath rest is part of his plan for us. It's just one example of his plan for us to be at peace and fulfillment in the way we live. And thirdly, we've said it's not about rules, it's about freedom. Paul wrote in Romans 8 that the Christian hope is that the, Christ, the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the kingdom of God. Being a Christian is not being slave to a set of rules. It's not being bound by things which people try to put on us. It's being gloriously free to go hand in hand with Christ through life and doing what he does, and following in his steps, handing over the keys of our life to him, and as he takes the driving seat, and we go willingly with him. We've also seen that the Pharisees are a picture of the fact that many or most people want to live their lives their own way, to please themselves. They fail to recognize in Jesus who and what God is, and the meaning of his love for us. So we've got the passion of the Pharisees. It was misguided. They didn't get it. We've seen the freedom of the Sabbath. And we've seen the lordship of the Son of Man. The last heading is Sabbath rest for the people of God. I understand all that. So what? It's a fair question. Let's go back to that word rest in Genesis, shall we? Turn with me again to the verse from Hebrews printed on the back page of the service outline. Hebrews 4.9. A Sabbath rest 
remains for the people of God. Those who enter God's rest also cease from their labors as God did from his. Now that's not a 24-hour job, is it? That is all the time. We are being given by God this great gift of enjoying his rest. Difficult to cope with that, isn't it? You know what you're doing this time tomorrow. It probably, for many of you, won't be that restful. But even there, it might be, it should be, that you can experience the peace and rest of Christ in that situation. It might be that you're going through a pretty tough time at, at the moment, and I know some of you have uh, done that recently, and for many of you, you're all too familiar with the harder points of living. And I want gently, um, but out of my own experience, I wouldn't say this if I didn't know it to be true, that when things are very tough, it is possible to find at the bottom of that pit an awareness of the fact that you're not alone and that Christ is with you and he is wanting not immediately to get you out of the pit, which is what you primarily want, but to be with you in that situation. And to enjoy, even in that extreme situation, something of his peace and his rest. Matthew knew about this when he placed before the stories we've just been thinking about in chapter 12. He placed those verses from the beginning of our reading. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I love the translation I put at the bottom of the page. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion, all those rules? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. That's beautiful. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Rest. Psalmist encourages us to rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for him, and he will give you your heart's desire. It's a gradual process. The more we recognize Christ's lordship in our lives, the more we enter into his rest. I'm not primarily talking about when we die at the end of our earthly walk, although certainly there's rest there. But now, as we live 24-7 in the midst of a busy and distracting world, 
So, are you tired and worn out? Learn the unforced rhythms of grace and keep company with me and you learn to live freely and lightly. May God bless you in your walk with him.